just to address, we have a uh, unique situation here as a ministry in our location where we are here in this place the Lord has given us. It's been a tremendous blessing to us. I trust you enjoy uh, gathering with God's people here at this location and all that we're able to accomplish together as a community uh, here at 5515. However, it comes with its challenges. Maybe some of you are noticing a couple of them right now. We do um, have a classical pianist as a neighbor, so he'll be playing uh, to soothe uh, you during this time. So relax, take a deep breath, and enjoy the music. Um, at least it's not our other neighbor who runs a jam session five days a week. So we'll take the classical pianist for now and allow him to practice and do what he needs to do also and be good neighbors as he is to us also. Uh, and then we uh, enjoy worship with the children. And uh, that's another aspect of our, our being here in this building that God has given to us. And so I don't want to start off a sermon, uh, and thou shalt not covet by coveting a new space with all kinds of other elements involved. We receive this as a good gift, and I trust that you enjoy it as well as we gather together to enjoy the little ones and our neighbors. As we start on the 10th commandment, it is my time of summary with you on the 10 commandments of thou shall not covet. You should not, shall not, absolutely must not covet. I want to encourage you as we wrap up our time in the Ten Commandments, I hope that I have laid a groundwork that is somewhat accessible to you to be able to settle in your heart at least this much, that the Ten Commandments matter for you, that this is a revelation of God's moral will for you as a believer, that oftentimes we do think of ourselves as the church nowadays, we can tend to think of ourselves, we started somewhere in Acts, the church, maybe perhaps chapter 2. So then from Acts 2 and on, there's our literature. This applies to me. And this is where I really need to uh, get the bones and marrow of my Christian life. It's from Acts 2 and on. And I want to labor intensively, do labor intensively here at Redeemer to help us all not think like that. That God's literature, all 66 books, are to God's people. And we are those people. And so that we recognize God's law, once for all given to the people of God, is applicable to me today, right now. That what he has commanded in Exodus 20 is not like for a bygone era to a bygone people. It is to me. And you must not covet. Isn't like a neat study in Old Testament theology, but it's a word directly to me as a believer hidden in Christ. And so I would encourage you, solidify the role of the law in your life. Lay hold of the Ten Commandments. It's a great revelation of God for the good of His people. Memorize them. Lay hold of them in your heart. That they are a guide to you in Christian living. I was speaking a moment ago with someone saying, it's kind of like the bumpers in the bowling alley. That's a really bad picture probably there extremely more significant than the bumpers. Yet if I could, by picture, think that it is a hedge placed about me, I'm like a little bowling ball. And the hedge placed about me for my guidance unto Christ again and again and again, that hedge that keeps me from the gutter, that word of remembrance, that mirror unto my sinfulness drives me again, 
boom, out of the bumper, down into the middle somewhere, perhaps even for a strike. Lay hold of the law. It is that mirror use, as we spoke of how it functions in my life then, if I could persuade you to believe. It does function in your life. It must function in your life. And then how the mirror use? Hold it up. It is held up. Each time we look at another commandment, you must not covet mirror. And the mirror is you looking into it and it revealing to you what? Your need. A knowledge, Paul says, Romans 3, of my own sinfulness. That's what that came to me. Romans 7, he explicitly speaks of coveting. I didn't even know not to covet, that I was coveting until the law came along and said to me, you shall not covet. The mirror was held up to me. And I saw, I'm covetous. And Romans 7 then leads you into Romans 8. No condemnation. Wait a minute, I was condemned. I do covet and I was told not to covet. I'm a sinner, but I have a Savior, Romans 8. There is therefore no condemnation for those who do covet condemnation, but not those who do covet and flee to Christ for salvation. There is for them who hide in him no condemnation, for the law is being fulfilled by the Spirit in them who live by the Spirit. So it is that word to us, that mirror usage, it drives me to Christ, Romans 8, from Romans 7. And then Romans 8, as we get to Romans 13, Paul will speak of keeping the commandments and so forth as those in Romans 8 led to Romans 13. Guess what Romans 13 says us? Back to Exodus 20. What is my duty now having been justified? To obey the Lord thy God. You shall not covet. So this is the function of the role, function and role of the law in our lives. I want to introduce to you through the Westminster Shorter Catechism their comment on the 10th commandment. The law of God requires that mere outward conformity and visible actions is not enough. Right? And we've looked at each of one of these, as Calvin said, uh, of, of um, thou shalt not steal. It's not a word simply to our hands, it's a word to our heart. So it is that the catechism continues. It also requires inward holiness and rectitude of heart. The Tenth Commandment reveals this in a special way. Whereas all the other nine commandments are concerned with both outward actions and inward desires, the Tenth Commandment alone speaks of an inward state of heart. No doubt this is the reason why Paul, the apostle, said, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law said to me, thou shalt not covet. As a Pharisee, this is the catechism, Paul kept the commandments outwardly to such an extent that he says in Philippians 3, touching the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. Right? External conformity. I was blameless. That is, Paul says, in the eyes and estimations of men, he has not guilty, he is not guilty of adultery, murder, or stealing in the eyes of any man. But here was the one commandment that spoke of inward desire 
only. And this led the apostle to see his own sinfulness within. For as someone has said once before about this commandment, quote, this commandment takes us down to the fountains of desire and touches the most secret sources of unholy actions, words, and thoughts. The internalized work of thou shalt not covet is what I want to look at this morning for a few moments. And that is the thought that as we consider covetousness or thou shalt not covet in the commandment, I want to share with you how I see that covetousness begins for each of us. This is the, the mindfulness of our eye as we look to ourselves. Covetousness begins with a dissatisfied heart. It starts there. It's, it starts in seedling form in the dissatisfied heart. That's what, again, the 10th commandment, as Westminster is saying, speaks only of inward desire. The heart is where the covetousness is taking place. Covetousness begins with a dissatisfied heart. There are questions that each of us ask. <clears throat> each of us ask. I know I do. I'm sure that you do as well. I think it's a part of living being alive, breathing the air, so much is that in our lives at points, we begin to ask questions that are not inappropriate, but they're probing questions about what God is doing and has done in our lives, right? I mean, surely all of us have wrestled with what God has done, what he seems to not be doing. And we have these questions deep upon our heart, and they're probing. They're hard on us. They're hard as we try to air them out to God. And they're not wrong but they can be. They can change into from questions to charges or accusations. These questions are something like this. I jotted three of them down that um, I can tend to think of and kind of ask at times. Has God, quote, question one, has God truly provided all that I need? Have you ever wrestled with that? Right? I think, it, it, like, if you're alive, you have. H- has God truly provided all that I need. Another one I jotted down was, has God really not denied me any good thing? We, right, we hear, God denies us no good thing. He gives us exactly what we need. There isn't this gigantic ticket item out there that God has withheld from me, and it's also, at that same time, what's best for me. But that's really not how we analyze it we can begin to ask questions like, has God really not denied me any good thing? Another probing question, my third, that I jotted down for myself to share with you is, is God for me or against me? Things can begin to kind of unravel maybe um, one then leads to another and it kind of be a series of dominoes. And then it starts to, like, at the end of the dominoes, there's, like, a whole pile of dominoes. And you can begin to think, like, one leads to the next, then this piece to that, and then this piece to that, and you're looking at the entire big picture, and you're like, there are problems everywhere. And it can be a struggle for our hearts. Is God really for me and not against me? I want to draw your hearts to where some of this began in biblical history and redemptive history that is consider with me just for a brief moment in introduction the covenant of works 
I'll do a brief sales pitch here. I'm going to be teaching a class coming up on the introduction. I, maybe you announced it. I just missed it. I wasn't maybe answering a question for one of my children. But I, a, a brief commercial spotlight. We'll be doing a class here that is helpful, I think, on the unity of the Bible and helping us to see exactly God's complete work of redemption as he's sewing it together on every page of Scripture. And we'll be doing a class for a few weeks together on the introduction to the covenant theology, how it is that God is working through covenants in the Bible. I'll introduce briefly here and steal some of my notes, I guess, here on the thought of the covenant of works. This is where, again, we see covetousness comes from a dissatisfied heart. This is where it's coming from. With these probing questions, consider Adam. The covenant of works between God and Adam in Genesis If I could paraphrase for you, you know this text, but I'll paraphrase between Adam and God. They have this relationship, right? And we call that a covenant relationship. And God is making promises to Adam, and he is requiring obedience of Adam in this what we call covenant relationship. They're bound together in this relationship. And this is to paraphrase what you know of Genesis chapter 2, God saying to Adam in this covenant parameter, you may eat what I have given. And by obediently doing so, you will live. You may eat of this, what I have blessed and what I have set aside for your good. You may have this. I, as king, as sovereign, as creator, as your Lord, have determined what's good for you. You have to trust me. And as you do so, you will live. Here it is. The garden is yours. Except, eat of that which I have commanded against, that which I have withheld, and you will surely die. Covetousness begins with a dissatisfied heart. Eat of what I have given and live. Eat of that which I have withheld and die. In the covenant of works, you see that each one of these, this commandment is a test of the heart, isn't it? It's a test, it's a challenge of Adam's heart. Created in an upright state, holiness and righteousness is his. Here he is, right in the middle of the lane. There's his bowling ball. Right down there. The bumpers aren't even... I mean, he is right in the, like, the, the brown lines that kind of go like this up to a point. He is going right down the center one. There he is. Adam's set up for success. It's a challenge, however, to his heart to trust and love God. That is, the heart of the test was simply this. So too is this one right here. Love me, Adam, by obeying me. Obey me by loving me. That's the heart of the test. There it is, Adam. Obey me by loving me. Love me by obeying me. The heart of the test is love. 
Again, I quoted for you earlier on in the role of the law as we consider each one of the commandments in our life lived before the face of God in light of the law. St. Augustine said this, Love God and do as you please. It's the heart of the law. Love me by obeying me. Obey me by loving me. So, St. Augustine. Love God, indeed. Adam, Redeemer, love God. And do as you please. For by love we will obey. For love has always been the summary of the law. But like Adam, each one of our hearts, do you sense that you died in Adam in the garden? Does he still reside That just like Adam, our hearts stray from godly satisfaction, contentment, and love. Our hearts grow in dissatisfaction, don't they? Even with the good gifts that God delivers right on time, they're not exactly what I would have picked. There is a a way in which our hearts give way to dissatisfaction continuously, and covetousness begins with a heart that's dissatisfied in God. That's where covetousness comes from dissatisfaction with God. So too, back with Adam, we begin to ask questions in dissatisfaction that change into charges. The question at one time was, has God truly provided? The accusation that comes with dissatisfaction in our heart changes to this, God has not provided all that I need. Dissatisfaction. Changes these probing questions that are appropriate. Has He really given me what I need? And we prayerfully are led into his presence to ask and share our deepest concerns. But then when our hearts grow in deep dissatisfaction with him and with what he's told us, we begin to not ask, we begin to charge. You have not given me everything that I need. This is with Adam and Eve in the garden, isn't it? The charge continues, God has denied me what is good for me. He has. I can tell you that because I can tell you what's good for me and I don't have it. Did you see the exchange of wisdom there? At one time, God had wisdom and he's given me all that is necessary for my life. And then now I've determined I have the wisdom And I'm determining you are withholding from me. If you take a moment and just in your mind go to Proverbs 1 through 9, wouldn't you consider that that is a deadly exchange? We're not listening to the wise teacher of Israel, are we? When we have decided the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, never mind. I have enough wisdom. And I, in my own wisdom, can determine what's good and appropriate for me. And he is withholding, and I accuse him of doing so. And my heart spiritually shrinks. It's like the Grinch. Ever seen it in the cartoon? And they're telling the story of how he became so green and so weird. One Christmas at a time, you know, got so little, and then it was all black. Right? In this, in this sense of these accusations lead to the shrinking of the heart distance between us and God 
wait a minute, that's present in the garden too, isn't it? A distancing from themselves, from God. We begin to charge, God indeed is against me. And this morning I want to draw our attentions to how temptation then begins. So to, to kind of arm you with the thought of how to look after your heart in this issue of covetousness and how to recognize temptation is this element that will come. And what will temptation do? Is it temptation's fault? No, it isn't. Temptation comes to do what? Expose what is already there. Temptation arises. Indeed, we all face it but it gains a foothold because of what's already present within the heart, dissatisfaction. So temptation will expose it and bring about destruction because we will follow after it. Not because of it forcing me to do something, but because what's already present within my heart leads me to lay hold of that temptation in my own feeble sense that that's better for me than what God has determined to give to me. You must not covet. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, that we can look at this garden narrative a little bit to Genesis chapter 3, if you would, to see exactly how this works out for Adam and Eve and the issue of a dissatisfied heart that leads to coveting, which then leads to death. To encourage you this morning about, once again, our unity with Adam and then yet our unity in Christ. Let's consider, you shall not covet from Genesis 3 for a couple of moments. I want to read the text for you, verses 1 through 3, to see how temptation will come to expose the dissatisfaction in our hearts. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows That when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both indeed were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Point number one this morning, I just have two points for us to consider how a dissatisfied heart is exposed through temptation and reminding us to be satisfied in Christ. It's number one, temptation exposes our dissatisfaction with God's goodness. It exposes our dissatisfaction with God's goodness. It's not that it proves itself to be better. It exposes what's already in the heart, dissatisfaction with what we possess by God's grace. I want to show you how that's the case here in the narrative. If I could draw your attention up to this point in Genesis. So you have one, two, and three obviously taking place in this narrative of Adam and Eve in the garden. There's a significant piece here that the writer is trying to draw your attention to about the role of goodness And that is up to this point, all the way to, let's see, verse, if you look there, um, 
She saw that the tree was good, verse 6 of chapter 3. That is the very first time this expression is used of anyone determining something to be good but God. This is a battle over goodness and wisdom. The expression is exclusively used of God up to this point, and it was good. That is, God determines all that is good and appropriate and necessary for his people. He has provided, and it was good. He has provided, and it was good. He has provided, and it was good. He has provided, and it is good. And now Eve says, I think that's good. Dissatisfaction in the heart with what God has given. So there's a shift there that the writer is drawing your attention to in the role of goodness. She is stepping outside the bounds of the wisdom of God and determining upon her own wisdom what is good and appropriate for her. That which is inappropriate appears to be good to Eve. This temptation is exposing her own dissatisfaction with God's goodness. Eve is being tempted to use her own judgments to assess what is good and appropriate for her life. Let's consider how that works. If you will, uh, keep your finger there. If you go all the way to the New Testament and go all the way to James, let's see how James kind of makes a brief commentary here on the issue and the role of the garden in this narrative here, James in his epistle kind of alludes to it in his language of how it is that we come by wisdom and how that wisdom is employed for our good and our benefit. Here, Eve is deciding on her own wisdom, not that of God's and what he has given to her. And her heart of dissatisfaction is giving way to covetousness. James 1 Verse 5, look at the graciousness of God to each and every one of us in those probing questions. If any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. Okay, so do you remember the, the, the role of wisdom here also in the battle? Eve not only determined that that fruit was good, Now, God had determined what was good, and now Eve is stepping out and determining on her own, this over here is actually good, and when she saw that it was good to make one wise. No. God makes known wisdom. God is wise. He is good. And if you need wisdom... In those probing questions, ask of God. Grant what is needed that I might recognize your goodness in this challenge. Grant what is needed that I might receive by faith that you stand for me and not against me, even though these challenges are present. For if any one of us, which we all lack wisdom, let us not stand autonomously and announce, we have the solution. But let him ask of God. And what is he to do? Rebuke? You don't have wisdom? That's a wonderful, beautiful picture of God as a gracious father, isn't it? What does he do when you ask for wisdom? He withhold? Does he rebuke? 
He gives. And in what manner? Generously. He isn't a begrudging father. You should have figured this out by now. It's like the tenth time you've done that. He is a gracious God. And he grants wisdom. But yet, when we don't take that role and we step out and we say, I have determined in my own wisdom what is good and what is appropriate for my life. Look at how that works out. Verse 13, as James continues to kind of allude to this garden situation. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted. Here are these probing questions and these challenges that we face. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. That is, Adam was standing there right in the position of bowling ball, right down the middle, uprightness, goodness, and holiness. He had all that is necessary to succeed. Love me, Adam! Let no one say I'm being tempted by God. He's put me in this situation, and it's bad, and he wants me to fail. He set Adam centrally in the garden with all goodness, righteousness, and holiness. Let no man say that he is tempted. I am being tempted by God. For he is not tempted with evil, neither he tempt any man. So how does temptation expose? Well, verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. By what? The temptation? No. By his own desire. That which is already there in the heart is exposed in temptation. Then desire, when it has conceived and is laid hold of, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It's not all the external circumstances that are driving your dissatisfaction and your failure, your burden, and your covetousness. It is your own heart within. Temptation is simply exposing the dissatisfaction already present with God's goodness. The question for Eve is, has God really told me enough about goodness in my life. You know that that's the case if you're back in Genesis 3. Look at the temptations that comes to Eve, and it comes to each one of us in these same categories again and again and again. We're kind of mini control freaks, aren't we? Look at verse 5. Exactly how the temptation comes to that desire within. Verse 5. For God knows... Now, do you see the posture of the serpent? Notice what he's telling Eve and you and me and the challenges we face. God knows more than he's telling you. He knows more. He is withholding. He's not telling you everything. There's more that you ought to know, and he just isn't telling you. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
The challenge that Eve is faced with is the same challenge that we are faced with. Has God truly told me enough that I need to know about, about my future, about where my provisions are going to come from, about who I am going to marry, about how he is going to care and provide for me, about how he is going to be for me in this particular challenge. He hasn't told me enough. That is exactly what Satan comes to say. You're right. He's withholding what is good for you. If you only knew a little bit more about next week, you'd really be armed. And he knows it, and he's not sharing it. Well, then that's not appropriate. I better stay up all night with anxiety, trying to figure it out. That's the only appropriate response. And who's winning? How is sanctification and perseverance working in your heart that night? It's not. He knows exactly the right amount to communicate to you. And he has through his word. And he is calling you to walk by faith and trust in his what? His goodness. Satan is preying upon Eve in the temptation. He's withholding that which you need to know about. There are better things for you. And he's just not giving them. And when Eve in her own eyes thought, you know what, that does seem right. I should know more. And that tree looks like it will make me wise. And it's good. Even though God said everything else is good, that seems good. And that seems like it will make me wise. I'll know what I really need to know. And she forged ahead because of the dissatisfaction already present within the heart. Coveting took place. And as James comments, death wasn't far behind. So it is the question that we wrestle wrestle with, and that is, has God really not denied me any good thing? Covetousness begins with a dissatisfied heart. As we heard last week also, uh, Pastor Dan reminded us of Romans 8. I want to encourage you that by faith to embrace the promises of Romans 8. From Romans 7, Paul, into Romans 8, and that is verse 31 and 32, really needs to stand in our mind, for thou shalt not covet. Let me read it for you. What then shall we say to these things, these challenges, these present um, bumps in the road? What shall we say to all of the temptation, the challenges, the goodnesses of God, all of the things that God is doing in our lives? What should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then look at how he argues. I'll read it for you. How he argues from the greater to the lesser. And that's critical for you, critical for each of us as we consider the role of coveting in a dissatisfied heart. Hear Paul encourage you. He who did not spare his own son. Follow the logic. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all to the lesser. How will he not also, with him, graciously give us all things? Did you see 
What is it that you need to know about? What is it that you need to possess? What is it that is better for you than Christ? And what gracious Father gives His own Son to redeem you from your sin and then will withhold every other good gift that is necessary? Paul says, it's impossible. For if He gave us Christ, He will give us all gracious, good things that follow. He doesn't give His most valuable and then withhold all the pieces. God is for us. Who can be against us? Even the challenges. Covetousness begins with a dissatisfied heart. I want to encourage you to remember Romans 8, 31 and 32. For in Christ, our hearts must go back in temptation to saying in these probing questions, in Christ, God has provided all that I need. Can you say that? Can you say that? Do you go to God in prayer when you do think these things are good and being withheld? This is not the life circumstance I ought to have found myself in. You are against me, aren't you? I must have done something like not paid for something at the grocery store and now you're chasing me down. I wonder when the lightning bolt's going to hit. I know I did something back there because my life is falling apart. No, 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 no. He is for us, not against us. How do we know he gave his own son? How will he then not also freely not by taxation, not by lawful perfect perfection and obedience, by grace. Give us all good things. So when my heart is in those probing questions of, is he really for me? Is he against me? Has he really given me every good thing that is necessary for my life? I run to the gospel and I say, in Christ, God has provided all that I need. Romans 8, 31, 32. In Christ, God is for me and never to be against me. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation. He is always for me. The second point of our text this morning, that is, temptation exposes our dissatisfaction with God's goodness and it exposes our dissatisfaction with God's truth. I want to show you how that exposes our dissatisfaction with God's truth. If you're back in Genesis 3, Look with me at verse 1 and verse 4. I want to point out to you how this dissatisfaction is exposed through temptation, but the dissatisfaction with God's truth. Look at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field than the Lord God, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, now it, it, for you as a student, mark in your mind as the people of God this, this comment, he said to the woman, Right? Here's a serpent, and he speaks to the woman. Now, drop down to verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman. And you're like, how is that life changing? Because it exposes quite simply and straightforward how easily we gravitate toward a lie. In this entire narrative event here, in the total imbalance 
to upset the obedience between the man, the woman, and their creator. This great harmony in the garden. How much, how hard did Satan really have to work to undo the harmony that God had given? To expose how easily we exchange the truth of God for a lie. How faint of heart we are. In, in scriptures, in the Old Testament, continues to call for what? Courage. Courage. Look to God and be strong. Why does he constantly call forth our need of courage? Because we're the lion. Not like of the tribe of Judah either. Of the Wizard of Oz type. Our constitutions melt quite easily. And we're concerned people. And we so easily in those moments with that dissatisfaction, that lack of courage, gravitate to a lie. He spoke only twice. And it upset the total balance of obedience and worship between Adam and Eve and between Adam and God, Eve and God, God and Adam and Eve. The whole destruction was brought about by a simple word, twice. He spoke only twice, yet it was simple and it is subtle, just enough to offset the total balance of trust that Adam and Eve had in God. Paul reminds us in Romans 1, that I'm sure you're familiar with, that we stand dead in Adam in Romans 1, and it says, what do we do eagerly? We exchange the truth of God, what is known, for a lie. Our dissatisfaction begins to charge and accuse God, once again, that He has not provided all that I need. I'm eager to embrace my own truth rather than the truth of God in the Bible. I'm eager to look at my circumstances, apply my own wisdom, and make a hasty change in a panic-stricken mode rather than embracing God's goodness believing by faith in the gospel that he is for me and not against me. I charge him that he has denied me what is good for me. I begin to think that God is against me and not for me. I choose a pathway of arrogance over humility. So what is the solution? If there is twofold indeed that this simple little narrative would expose our covetous heart as we saw it in Adam and Eve long before, that dissatisfaction in the heart is exposed through temptation, that we're dissatisfied primarily with two things in this text, God's goodness, that he really did give me what is good for me. That can be in a spouse, as we looked at adultery. It can be in a job. It could be in a home. It could be in an apartment. It could be in a church building. And I come back and I say, in the gospel of Christ with Paul, 
how could I sit here and say, he has given me his son, but he has not given me the right house? He has given me his son, but he has not given me the right job. Because that's a big deal. This over here is little, but it dominates my thinking and it dominates my heart. He has given me his son. Then he will also, with the son, graciously give me all good things. And my heart, by faithful embrace, he is for me, even in this job. He is for me, even in this house. He is for me, even in this church building. He is for me with this spouse. So it is the truth of God. We don't want to exchange and embrace a lie. We throw out the lie by grace and we come back to the truth. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also? It's unthinkable. It's unthinkable. How will he not also with him, the son, graciously give us all things? Covetousness begins with a dissatisfied heart. Let your heart be satisfied in Christ he who gave himself up for you was raised for your justification is working by the presence of the spirit perseverance and sanctification and is returning in consummation to draw you to him forever let your heart be satisfied in him Let us pray. Father, we do pray that the law would hold up a mirror to our covetous spirits. Constant dissatisfaction. Let us come back to the greatest of all realities where you displayed your gracious love for us to be for us and not against us. And the offering of Christ who was made flesh dwelt among men lived a perfect, sinless life to overcome the sin that was laid hold of in the garden. He who was tempted for 40 days, and yet he was without sin. He laid down his life for us, offering it on our behalf. He died a cruel death on the cross. He laid in the grave three days this week, confess. And he was raised to sit at the right hand of the Father, establishing the justification of all of his people. And he stands now as our high priest, mediating a new covenant that he has made with us, a covenant he established in his very own blood. We praise you for Christ. And we would ask that you would grant by divine favor our hearts to be steadfast and satisfied in him. That we would not look to the left or to the right. And this we will only do if you so graciously grant us. For not one measure of the law can be fulfilled in us. It must be granted by divine favor. 
favor that is granted to us in Christ. Spirit, perform your wondrous deeds, cleaning our hearts, setting them steadfast upon the law of the Lord, where there is great reward. Christ Jesus' name I pray, amen.